keeping them in prayer. And we'll also, as we get information or a prayer request, we'll add that so it's more than just their name and where they're serving. And then finally, we'll highlight a ministry of the church. And so you can know how to pray for different aspects of, of, of church life and ministry. Um, and just so that we can be keeping one another in prayer and encouraging one another in that way. If you have your Bibles, please join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read this week that this is one of the more uh, challenging portions of the New Testament, and after spending the week on it, I would wholeheartedly agree with whatever commentators uh, make that assessment. This was uh, a challenge in several different ways, and um, we're going to do our best to dive in and understand these verses in 1 Corinthians. I certainly, as, and as we read these verses together, you understand why I'm saying this, uh, there's no way that we'll be able to answer every question about this passage. There's a lot of things that we simply don't know and a lot of things that we simply don't have time to dive into because each one is like going down into the rabbit hole. And again, you'll understand here as we read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2, and we'll read through verse 16. I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you so you can follow along in the translation of your choice. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend to you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if it is a for if a wife will not, ha will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair... It is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. See why this might be a little challenging? So we're just going to say, guys, don't wear long hair. Ladies, don't cut it short and wear hats to church. Let's pray. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a challenging, uh, challenging passage to dive into, and I honestly was tempted to skip it, but we're going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, we're going exegetically through the book, and uh, so we're going to tackle this and see what God has to say through these verses. I want to give just a few preliminary thoughts here. Paul is now beginning to shift his discussion. He's beginning a new section. Remember we said from chapter 8 through chapter 10, actually chapter 11, verse 1, 
he was covering this whole idea of a meat had been offered to idols. We, we've been spending a lot of time talking about that. And now he's shifting to the topic of worship, to corporate worship. And this is a section here that begins now here in chapter 11, verse 2. And it's going to go all the way through chapter 14, as he's going to talk about different issues that were going on in worship. Remember, we said that Paul is writing this letter sort of for two reasons. He got word, according to chapters one, chapter 1, through some mutual contacts of some disconcerting things that were happening there. And so he wanted to deal with them and to correct and address those issues. The other portion is uh, they wrote, the Corinthians communicated with him either multiple times or maybe through one letter, and they had some questions. So Paul's doing several things. He's correcting, and he's also answering questions. We're not sure here what, uh, what, that, what this portion is, whether this is a corrective, probably more likely that, or whether it's part of their question. But Paul is shifting to a new section here, dealing with corporate worship. And so in the next uh, number of weeks here, we're going to see a lot of things that directly apply to our church gatherings. I want to say a a word about biblical interpretation. With difficult texts like these, um, it's important that we always— I like how Alistair Begg says it. He he says um, the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. We shouldn't get too lost and bogged down in a really tricky or difficult passage like this. What does the whole of the New Testament say? What are the, what are the things that are primarily emphasized in Scripture? Um, we have to be really, really, really careful when you come across a verse or a small passage that really gives us, gives us difficulty to really build a lot of doctrines or a lot of firm foundations uh, of Bible teachings off of an obscure or difficult passage. With difficult texts like this, I always want to ask, what is it that God's saying? Um, What does this passage mean here? And then, why did God put it here? I truly believe what Paul told Timothy is true, that that the Word of God is given to us by His inspiration, and all of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and training in righteousness. So uh, some of you guys are reading through the Bible in a year, and you're like wading through Numbers and Leviticus right now, and maybe you're scratching your head like, why did God put this here? All Scripture is given by God, and it is profitable. It's not all equally beneficial. We've all been far more blessed by certain passages, maybe in in Jesus' teachings, or maybe a a Pauline epistle, than we have by uh, dietary codes in, in the Pentateuch. But all of it's there for a purpose, and all of it's there for a reason, including a passage like this. Another thing that I think is important to remember that when we study the scriptures is that we have to remember that we're products of our time. We never come to the text a a tabula rasa, as it were, a blank slate. We all have preconceptions. We all have different ideas uh, that we approach the text with. As much as we may try to say, okay, I'm just going to see what the Bible says and not not bring anything to it. We all we all come to it. I mean, we, think about it, for those of you who are married or have been married, uh, you know that uh, as much as you tried to come in like with a full head of steam, right, to be the best husband or best wife you could be, there were things from your past, or there were ways in which like expectations you had, or certain uh, ideas or uh, ideals that that you expected to work out. It, you had you brought stuff into the marriage, even if it was just a, a certain grid through the way that you looked at things. I, I've, I've told stories about the different ways my wife and I would, would look at stuff before. Uh, it, we, we, have, we see it through different eyes. Well, we have to remember that as we study the Bible, 
uh, there's a lot that has taken place in our culture in the last hundred years, especially since the 60s, that inform our understanding and our reception of these words with regards to the roles of men and women in worship and in the home. And then finally, um, we have to remember that there are details about this text that were understood implicitly by the first century readers that Paul did not explain for us. There was a certain understanding culturally. Maybe there were some things that they had talked about when Paul lived with them. There are so many assumptions in this passage, so many like um, uh, cultural norms that have not been explained to us that we can make some educated guesses, but, but simply it has not been explained to us. Some of our difficulty will come from our inability to know exactly what Paul had previously taught the Corinthians on this subject and what they had, had uh, communicated to him about their understanding of it. And so with those kind of uh, caveats to begin here, I want to just, uh, first of all, begin in verse 3 and lay the theological principle, the theological foundation. Verse 3 forms the theological basis for the entire discussion. He says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife, uh, of a wife, or a woman, your translations might say, is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, just as the outset is just a little Greek footnote, uh, in Greek, the, the word for wife and woman and the Greek word for husband and man are both the same Greek word. And so that's why some of your translations, you, you heard the, the, the ESV where I read from here, it mentioned frequently husband or wife in the text, and you may have been looking at your translation seeing man and woman. Uh, that's a real difficulty in this passage because the Greek doesn't specify. The Greek word can be uh, both, uh, they, they didn't have a, a word like we do in English to distinguish between man and husband and wife and woman. And so that's just a, a little interpretive uh, freebie there for you in case you're, you're curious as to why the translations, you may even have a footnote in your, in your Bible there. The word for head uh, is, is used a number of times here in this passage, and it's actually even used a number of ways. Uh, the expression, it's, uh, the Greek word is kephale, and uh, here it refers primarily to, uh, metaphorically, to authority. As he says in verse 3, the head or the one in authority over man is Christ. Uh, this is a common usage even outside of the, the New Testament and over 50 examples of the expression uh, with, with speaking of head, where person A, A is the head of person B, found in ancient Greek literature, person A always has authority over that person there. This idea of authority in God's word is a crucial teaching. Us understanding that, that, that the head of the church and the head of every man is Jesus Christ is crucial. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it tells us this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That's Ephesians 5, 23. We see in Colossians 1, 18, he is the head of the body, speaking of Jesus, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's Colossians 1, 18. These verses teach here, then, there's, there's sort of a, a, a chain of authority here. That, 
that in the, in the relationship, in our spiritual relationship, all of us are subject to Jesus Christ. Specifically, he's, he's, he singles out the men. And he says, men, listen, you answer to Jesus. And in the home, men, you're supposed to lead your wives. And then he says that the head of Christ is God. Now, again, this is a, a passage that has been much maligned. Uh, there's been a lot of gymnastics to find out ways to, to make it teach something that it does not uh, immediately teach in the text. But uh, it, it's, it's tricky nonetheless. We have to understand something, first of all, that it does not teach. A couple things. It does not teach that women are in any way inferior to men. When we read this passage or when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about husbands being the, the, head of the head of their wives, it does not mean that somehow that women are lesser than men or their husbands. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, um, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Scripture is very clear that men and women each bear God's image equally. God does not love one gender above another. God is very, very clear about that, that we're all precious in his sight. However, he has ordained within the home and within the church roles, if you will, that each are to fulfill. Again, we look at this and we see this in the, out in the, the business world, for example. Think about where you work or places you have worked. We all recognize that um, you can't have a work environment where everybody is the boss. We have to realize that, that there's authority structures. Again, just as in, within the workplace, as so in the church and in the home, sometimes those authority structures get um, messed up, they get distorted, uh, sometimes they become authoritarian in nature. This passage here and in, in the entire New Testament does not teach any kind of permission for uh, whether it's male-dominated or female-dominated, authoritarian structure that, that belittles or degrades someone below them. God has called us to operate in his God-given structure in a way that brings honor to him and magnifies the dignity of each of his created beings. What this passage does teach, and again, we're not going to be able to dive down into each and every verse like we would like to, but uh, what this passage does, does teach is that there's differences between men and women. There was a day when this was pretty clearly understood. Things have changed significantly in our culture. Uh, there are both physical and biological differences, and that should be celebrated and rejoiced in. Not mocked, not ridiculed, not changed or distorted, not apologized for. God has created us distinct and unique. There are differences not only in biology, but there are differences in our roles in the home and in places of worship. I love how Ray Ortland says this. He says, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. I love that. Marriages and in our home, it should be a partnership. It's not always that way, but it should be a partnership. And God has called men as the head of homes to lead that partnership, not domineer, 
not rule with an iron fist, not belittle and degrade, but to lead godly in a godly and wise in a gentle manner. It means that the burden of the household ultimately does fall back on the man. God's going to hold us, I believe, with greater accountability for how we lead our homes. It's not up for us to, to throw upon our wives' shoulders, for example, the, um, the teaching of God's word to our children. Um, you may assign different roles within your home, depending, maybe one of you is better at finances uh, than the other, and so uh, maybe you, you hand that, you, you and your wife decide that she's going to take that, but that doesn't mean that, men, that you, we take a hands-off approach then in that regard to finances or any other area of our home. God has called us at the end of the day, to be responsible for what goes on in our households. And at the end of the day, God has called men to lead as well and, and have that final responsibility in the church. When a, one writer goes on, to, goes on to say regarding this section here, he says, whatever Paul means by the head of a wife as her husband, it can't be understood to denigrate, downplay, or threaten her stance as an equal because Christ also has a head. The son joyfully chooses to submit himself to the father. Paul is not saying anything about one's essence. The beauty of this passage here is that he roots this in the Trinitarian order. He is saying that in the Trinity, the father, the son, and the spirit are equal in being and in essence. Listen carefully. But they willingly choose to fulfill different functions and roles for the purpose of communicating their Trinitarian communal love. In other words, looking at Jesus and recognizing his willingness to subordinate himself to the will of the Father in the Trinitarian economy is a sign of humility and strength, not weakness. I believe that looking at the husband and wife relationship from that lens frees us to be able to see the beauty of it. For those who push back against this passage, and in, in, our, in our culture, where, especially in the last century, where feminism has given rise to so many distorted pictures of, of the role of a woman and, and her giftedness, I, I believe that it could be easy to look at a passage like this and see it through a distorted lens and saying, okay, either God's a misogynist or we're not understanding this correctly because there's no way that a loving God would say that a husband should be the head of his wife. I think that's looking through with a distorted perspective. Because if, if that's our perspective of God, then we have to see Jesus then, who says, Father, I've come to do your will. The one who, according to this passage, is, um, is subjected himself to God the Father, we have to see him as taking an inferior role, an inferior position. I don't think scripture teaches that. I think what, what this writer says here is that when we truly understand the Trinity first and then his calling in the home, we begin to see the beauty of the different roles and relationships that God has formed for us to enjoy here in his creation. When Christians displayed the central order in worship and in marriage, God is pleased. Gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. It was God's will to ordain 
men and women to be different and to have different roles. It is a beautiful thing when done in a biblical way, when, when followed according to God's word. We must understand that there's a difference between headship, which is what, what this passage teaches, and domination, dominion, and ruling with an iron fist. That's the biblical and theological foundation for what Paul is going to say in this passage. Now, I realize that we haven't answered even all of your questions about verse 3, but we have to move on to touch on uh, this idea of head coverings, and we won't answer all your questions there either. But we're going to at least try to understand a little bit about what Paul was getting at and why this was here. And so we sent the, then see, we saw the, the theological foundation, but now we look at the practical application and we see this, how he fleshes this out. The primary issue, did I put this up here? I did. The primary issue that seems to be going on, as best we can understand, is that when believers gathered for corporate worship, usually in homes, but not always there in Corinth, but primarily in homes, women were not hit wearing head coverings, especially when they prayed or prophesied when they were involved in the service. And that was a problem. What in the world? <laughs> what, was, what were the head coverings? I mean, I have, I have so many questions this week, and I got a few of them kind of answered, but I still have a lot of questions. Why was it a problem? You see, what, what they were doing was they, were, they realized that in Christ they had been set free. And just like with the previous issue we talked about with the meat offered to idols, there's like, they're like, hey, we're free to do this stuff. There's no more restrictions, there's no more shackles on us. If we're not like directly disobeying a command from God's word, we can do it. And so they were eating all the, the meat that they wanted, and, and, and in worship, they were beginning to disregard some of the cultural customs that were really important to their society. Better understand, we need to take a moment and dive down into their culture as best we can. The purpose of head coverings um, or, or I should say, what was the, what was the custom? Um, there, there were a couple of, excuse me, there were a couple of uh, suggestions out there. When you read verse 15, it looks like it possibly could be saying that the head coverings were when women took their hair and they, they gathered it up and put it into some sort of a bun on top of their head. Uh, some commentators think that was the case. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that probably just based upon their culture, knowing Middle Eastern culture, uh, that, that it was typical and co uh, common, even there in Corinth, especially there in Corinth, to, to wear a, a, not a veil over your face, but like a, a shawl or a, a covering over top one's head. When you went out in public, uh, when you were with other people, it was, it was a very cultural and a custom um, a practice uh, to demonstrate modesty. It'd be very, very common to see that even in parts of the world you go to today, it's still very common for women to cover their head when they're out in public. The only people that, that didn't cover their head uh, that I can understand, there were two categories of people. Either you were super wealthy and high in society and you could afford to have, to have elaborate hairstyles. In that case, really wealthy women would not wear a head covering because they wanted to show off their extravagant new do. And then the, uh, the, other, the other group of people that would not wear head coverings were those who were sexually promiscuous, those who wanted people to know very clearly that they were sexually available. And so you can see now as believers gather together that if 
that custom is still the general practice in that whole society. And there were women like, I'm tired of wearing this thing. It's gone. You could see Paul's like, but don't you realize what you're communicating by that? Either that, that you're, you're an arrogant, wealthy snob, kind of contrary to what like some of the things Jesus talked about, or that you're sexually available. And the idea is that you're not. <laughs> and so it, it created an issue in the church, and Paul wanted them to know, listen, there were, there were, there were, and, and, and again, I, we don't have time to recount all the research and data. I could, if you're interested, I can email you some of the, the commentaries and study resources and background info I, I studied. Uh, there were, there were so much that was being communicated sexually by not having the, the head covering on. Uh, it was, uh, it was um, uh, not subtle to say the least. And so, um, Paul wanted them to see that their behavior had consequences. Their actions were communicating something that they probably didn't want to communicate. But it, was, it seems like it was creating issues in marriages. Because husbands were like, I'm not comfortable with this. And, and other believers in the midst, some were wearing them, some not. And others were not comfortable with it. What are you saying? What are you communicating here? And so Paul said, listen... Let's wear that head covering when we gather together because you're communicating something that you don't want to communicate. Let me, let me give it uh, maybe a present-day illustration to just sort of give the, the shock a little bit here. Let's say your, uh, your next-door neighbor, the, 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 couples, the, the couple that lives next door, they've been married for years and years, great couple, maybe even are believers and, and uh, maybe even attend our church. And uh, could you imagine what would happen one day if, if you... Uh, if, if you saw them out at the mailbox or in church, and the wife said to you, I want you to know that I changed my name back to my maiden name. You'd be like, what? What's going on? Are you guys getting a divorce? you have a marriage problem? Why would you? I mean, you've, you've been married for 30 years here. You've had his name, and now you're, you're just dropping it, and you're going back to your maiden name? Like, what are you saying? Like, we would assume that there's a problem because... All of a sudden, she's dropped the name, and she's changing her name back to her maiden name. We were just, we're making that assumption. Our first place we would go is, there's marriage issues. There's struggles here. There's, you're communicating something through that action. Um, and so that's what Paul wanted them to understand, that there's, there's underlying messages being sent that maybe you don't even intend to send, but to avoid distractions in worship, to avoid uh, compromising the gospel, let's, let's go with this cultural practice so that we don't have any more miscommunication. Because we're not saying anything that we don't mean to say. Does that sort of make sense? Um, despite its obscurities, this is uh, from another commentary, Paul's teaching here in this passage clearly affirms three things. A balance between, number one, a respect for the creation mandate to maintain and even celebrate the gender distinctions with which we've been created. Number two, a respect for culturally specific approaches to guarding moral and sexual purity. And then number three, a, a commitment to fully integrate women and their gifts into the experience of the worshiping community. You see, what isn't, doesn't even come out in this passage is that, that many, many of um, Greeks would have already been scandalized it, the, the way in which women would have been invited into that worship service. Even in Jesus' day in, in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, women were not allowed to worship in the same place as the men. 
Even in many places in Orthodox Judaism today, or if you go to a, a, an Amish service, for example, the women are kept separated from the men. Uh, there is uh, so much freedom that Paul is introducing here to bring both men and wife, man and woman together to say, listen, they're both equal in God's sight. They're both gifted in God's sight. They're here to worship together because he has bought them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is distinct roles in, in the, the choices that we make, the decisions we make about uh, cultural uh, matters do matter. They do communicate things. And so he wanted them to be thinking about one another, and he wanted them to be thinking about their witness and testimony to a watching world. So does this passage teach that women today need to wear head coverings when they come to worship in church? No, I do not believe it does. I don't believe that we've been sinning all these years that we've gathered here without enforcing a rule like that, because I, I don't believe that that communicates any of the things that it, that it would have communicated in first century Corinth. Uh, ben, uh, Benjamin Merkel says this, Christian women are not required to wear head coverings today when praying, since the symbol of a woman's head being covered is different today than it was during the time of, a, time of Paul, at least in many cultures. And so as we close, um, the... I skipped a couple of things there. Um, we have to ask the question, what does this have to do with us anyways? Why in the world is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16 in the Bible? I know why verse 17 and afterwards there, that's, that's going to be really, once we get to that next week, we're going to talk about communion, and it happens to be on a communion Sunday. It's going to be very, very easily to be seen applicable. But I look at a passage like this, and it's, I struggle a little bit more to see why, uh, why God may have put this here. But I think that one of them is to remind us of the importance of God-ordained roles. When we see that Jesus came to this earth and he said, Father, I've come to do your will. Remember in the garden, he said, it's not my will, but yours be done, O God. We don't look down on Jesus or think of him like a, the lesser deity because he said that to the Father. He recognized his role in the Trinity at that moment was to be the one who came down as the sacrificial lamb as a payment for our sin. Different roles, same in essence, same in his deity, but he came to this earth to serve and to die and to rise again. We recognize that in the home, God has given us different roles. In any way of explaining those roles that demeans women is sinful and wrong. Any way of explaining or, or trying to apply those roles in a way that, that puts someone down, that makes, makes a, a woman feel as if she is not equal in God's sight to every other man and woman that God has created and precious in God's sight, that's, that's wrong. But God has ordained different functions for us to serve. And God has called us to fulfill them faithfully. If you want to see Paul explain it a little more clearly, check out that passage in Ephesians chapter 5. We've looked at it before. I think it was a couple years back. But you'll see that when we serve in the roles that God has called us to as husbands and wives, not only do we bring honor to him by being obedient to his word, but our home is able to flourish in a way than if we were competing for each other's jobs. And then finally, when we think about how this
passage applies to us. We need to remember that I, I, I want to change this after I put the slides out there to worshiping. We need to worship God's way. We need to worship God's way. We need to think about how we're doing things that may bring distraction when it comes to worship. We have to remember, though, that it's God who gets to determine how we worship. God is the one who gets to say what we do and what we can and can't do. Authority is really, really important. And we live in a culture that loves to throw off authority, loves to be free. That's what was going on here in Corinth. You can't tell me what to do, chapter 9. I have my rights. Paul's reminding us to step back and say, listen, remember God gets to say how we do life. Whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether I'm alone and no one else is around, or when we're gathering together and worshiping together, God gets to orchestrate and, under, and give us the understanding and the framework for how we understand how that plays out. There's a way of worshiping which dishonors Christ. There's a way of worshiping which brings a distraction. In that culture, for men to cover their head, it was wrong. It was a distraction, probably because their head coverings for men were used in pagan worship services or it had something to do with flaunting a socially elite status. Either way, it took away from worship. When women gathered there without their head coverings, it communicated other messages and it distracted and took away from worship. We must always ask ourselves, am I coming to God to worship Him in my way or in His way? Am I approaching God the way He wants to be approached or am I coming on my own terms? When we come back to verse 3, and we recognize that the head of every man is Christ. In, in Ephesians 5, Paul says it like this, Christ is the head of the church. When we come with a spirit that wants to lift up and magnify Jesus Christ, it helps some of these other issues kind of drift to the side. If my constant posture is, how can I exalt Jesus through this, in this place, through this action, sort of these other things sort of work themselves out and don't become quite as serious of issues. You see, the Apostle Paul had never ever gotten over what Jesus Christ had done for him. Never. And as he wrote this book, all the way throughout, he brings it always, it's always coming back to Jesus. The Corinthians were so good at getting off on little tangents, fighting about their rights and uh, eating the meat that they wanted to and, and head coverings here. And we're going to see next week that they were, they were getting drunk at communion and they were, um, they were struggling to understand the spiritual gifts. And like there were all these other issues. Remember, even back earlier, they were allowing awful sexual immorality in the church. And Paul just keeps bringing them back to Jesus every time. And he's like, if you'll just keep your eyes on Jesus, you won't get so off on these other side issues that are creating problems in the church, are creating distractions and worship, and are hurting your witness to a watching world. It must come back to Jesus. I love how the author of Hebrews says it. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
Let us run with endurance the race set before us. This week, maybe you're like super interested in diving down more into this head covering stuff, and I'd love, email me, and I'd love to send you some more resources on that. But even more than that, because that's not the issue. The issue is keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I would love to encourage you that as you go throughout your week, consciously lift up your eyes to Christ. Make him your focus. When you're tempted to get distracted, maybe get bogged down in a social media argument or, or waste all kinds of time on, 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 on the internet or, or indulge in, in that sin that you've been trying to get free from, Turn your eyes to Jesus, the head of the church, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I confess to you, I don't fully understand this passage. I don't understand all the things that the Apostle Paul says here. But I do know that you have created men and women to be different. And those differences, those God-ordained differences are good. God, we live in a culture that is trying to distort and rewrite and change the definition of the two genders that you have created. And Lord, we know that to accept a distorted viewpoint in that regard would have devastating consequences in our homes, in how we understand Scripture, in how we live with one another. I pray that we as a church would be faithful to maintain those good and beautiful distinctions. May we also recognize that you've created us to have different roles in the home and in the church family. Lord, I pray that we would understand rightly and biblically what you say about those roles. God, forgive, forgive us, especially as men, for distorting what those, uh, those passages teach and become authoritarian and domineering bullies. Lord, would you give conviction to our hearts when we act in ungodly ways and treat our sisters in Christ our spouses in an ungodly way. Convict our hearts. May we uphold the dignity of men and women in our, in our churches, in our homes, in our culture. And Lord, may we live out of those, operate uh, and, and use our gifts while we operate out of that biblical framework you've called us to. Father, we believe that you make this all about Jesus. And I pray that in our daily lives, we would be all about Jesus. In how we, how we speak, what we read, what we meditate on, how we pray, let everything be in our lives, all consumed with Jesus. So that some of these side issues, these distractions that occupy our minds, just drift away because we've got our eyes fixed in the right place and on the right person. We love you, God, and we thank you that you have given your only son, Jesus Christ.
to die on the cross, that through faith in his finished work, faith in him, the Lamb of God, and through his resurrection, we may have eternal life. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Now the God who is mighty, the Lamb who is worthy, and the Spirit who is near, fortify you to live faithfully in these days and all the days until Jesus comes. Amen. God bless you this week.